Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Fifty years ago today, millions took part in the first Earth Day. A unique day in American history is ending, a day set aside for a nationwide outpouring of mankind seeking its own survival. Earth Day. Today, of course, there will be no marches or gatherings. Instead, many people will mark this day from the indoors as everyone is still confronting this deadly pandemic. Hello, everyone. I'm David Chalian, the CNN political director. This is The Daily DC. Polluting factories are shuttered. There are clearer skies in cities across the world, and animals are venturing out into deserted streets. But what does all of this mean for the future of the global fight against climate change? Joining me now to discuss this and more... CNN climate analyst John Sutter. John, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So I do want to ask you, John, early on in this pandemic, when when social distancing and stay-at-home orders began, I I saw my Instagram feed full of um, friends from L.A. and other areas where you usually see a lot of smog or not clear skies showing pictures like of a clearer skyline than I think I'd ever seen before. And, um, I, you know, I am wondering in your mind, is there uh, as awful as this pandemic is, obviously, and, uh, and it is, uh, is there a silver lining here in terms of sort of the shutdown of the economy, the stay-at-home orders are somehow benefiting our environment now. I mean, I think it's a complicated thing to think through, right? Because it does. Th- this is all happening, you know, because of a global pandemic in which you know thousands and thousands of people are dying. I think the most like tangible, like real benefit that's happened is a reduction in air pollution, like you mentioned, which shows up in big cities that normally might look smoggy or, or gray. Um, having clear skies. And, and that really does have um, incredible health benefits for people, which when, you know, you're thinking about a, a global pandemic that it attacks people's lungs, uh, anything that that sort of, you know, boosts lung health is important. I mean, there are like about 7 million people a year uh, on a normal year, you know, die from air pollution related causes. So air pollution is, is its own public health crisis. And we have made a dent in that right now. What, what I think is a little dangerous is thinking that we've solved these big environmental challenges, especially the climate crisis, um, because we've seen this dip in air pollution associated with the fact that people are staying home and not commuting and factories, like you mentioned, aren't running at full tilt like they, they normally would be. I think that this moment tells us that we can make big changes in the way that we live. We can make big changes in the way that we spend money in terms of um, you know, government response to, to what's happening with the, the pandemic. Um, but I don't think it means that we fixed 
the climate crisis or fix oh, clearly. the air pollution yes. problems that, that will bounce back once, you know, hopefully, <laughs> eventually things return to some, some sort of normal. Clearly not. I'm wondering also, just from your perspective as somebody who has studied, um, you know, climate science for so long and, and the effects of climate change and the potential uh, solutions that are out there to mitigate some of the harmful effects from climate change, when you see the globe sort of mobilize around a pressing threat as it has with coronavirus, just in terms of watching you know, a planet full of people and governments across and around the world responding that way to a threat, do you scratch your head and wonder, like, well, why why can't that be the threat that you've been working on all these years? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think if anything, uh, for like climate activists in particular, especially young people, that this this shows them that uh, the adults of the world, the governments of the world can mobilize behind a massive global threat, which, you know, climate change is another one of those. In terms of why that hasn't happened, I mean, I I, um, I think there are a few reasons. One is, is the sense of urgency, like climate change is here, it is now, it has been an issue that's been in the national public discourse for, you know, something like 50 years. It's not, it's not a new issue, but because it unfolds slowly, like from our, from the way that we perceive it, um, you know, it, it's harder to have that moment where the world sort of freaks out and wakes up and everyone gets behind the idea of of doing something to fix it. So I think that's one reason that helps explain it. But I, I do think that there, there people in the climate activist world do find some hope from the idea that the world can mobilize around a big global issue like this. It's just about convincing people. And I think that this is happening. But convincing people all over the world that, that the climate crisis also poses, uh, you know, a deadly and expensive and really existential threat when you look at it in the long term. I think the timescales involved are uh, are one of the big problems. Um, you know, I was on a conference call the other day with uh, Catherine Hayhoe, who's a, a climate scientist at, at Texas Tech. Um, and she said that, you know, every disaster movie begins with uh, a, like a smart scientist being ignored. <laughs> and I think that that is, uh, you know, something that's, that's been happening decade after decade after decade with the climate crisis. And, it, it, you know, maybe one takeaway from the COVID-19 pandemic is that we have to listen to people who have, you know, scientific authority and, and, and are able to tell us uh, what's going on in the way that we're putting our, our way of life in uh in jeopardy. A high profile climate, I wouldn't call him an activist, I guess, but political leader in the climate battle is uh, former Secretary of State, uh, presidential candidate John Kerry. And he was saying something very similar to that. I want you to hear what Kerry just had to say. And I think it's going to open the door to people to reflect on what the scientists are telling us. Coronavirus was on the horizon and everybody warned about what would happen. And people ignored those warnings. And our entire economy is now shut down. Look beyond that now, and it's not even looking over the horizon to see the impacts of the climate crisis. They're with us already. And so we need to reevaluate uh, what we're prepared to do and need to do. Now, I, I say this very clearly. Addressing climate crisis is not a choice between having a good economy or dealing with the climate. That is a false uh, uh, proposition. So exactly that thought, John, may that be something that comes out of this 
public health crisis and and can potentially be applied uh, to the scientists who are uh, speaking authoritatively about climate. That's one. And two, do you see any nexus between sort of the debate we see of the economy or uh, making progress on the public health front with coronavirus, uh, again, that is a familiar debate, political debate, to anybody that has sort of followed the climate change battle politically. I think it totally is a false choice. This idea of like economy versus environment, economy versus public health, it's been this scourge and talking point for years and years now. And, um, you know, I think he's right to say that it, that it is it is a false um choice there. I, I think, uh, you know, again, the solutions to the climate crisis really are like technological and engineering fixes. We need to change the way that we get energy. We need to use cleaner sources like, you know, wind and solar. We need to change our transit systems. It doesn't look like everyone's staying at home, all businesses shutting down, all factories shutting down. The world can and should um, be safe and operable, like, and actually will be safer and healthier if we eliminate fossil fuels from the global economy, I don't think it's like a, an either or. I do question whether we've fully learned that lesson, though. I mean, I do think for some people, scientists have become these rock stars amid a global pandemic because we've realized how much we need them and need to be listening to them. Uh, but I think there's a big chunk of, of at least society here in the U.S. where, you know, in uh, this administration has done a lot to actively reject or ignore um, the opinions of the scientists. So I, I don't know that we fully learned that lesson. I hope that we do on, on both fronts. One, that, you know, scientists are experts and we need to be listening to them and put, putting them at the front of public policy discourse. And, and two, that it's it's not this either or choice between either we have jobs and a healthy economy or we have, you know, a healthy and safe environment. That's just, it's just not reality. Um, so much, uh, or I shouldn't say so much, I guess, but a significant chunk of the political messaging around the environmental crisis uh, has been very much directly tied to public health. And I'm wondering, uh, you had mentioned before the notion of less polluted air may be you know, a good thing right now when you're dealing with uh, a disease that impacts people's lungs and stuff. But I, but I do wonder, do you see any nexus here about the lack of work that has been done dealing with air quality, let's say, if you will, and the transmission of coronavirus. Have you talked to any scientists about that or is there a nexus there? And there was a, a study from researchers at Harvard that, that's still kind of preliminary and under peer review. But I mean, they found with about a one, with just a slight increase in air pollution, there's about a 15% increase in the death rate um, associated with a pandemic like this because of that pollution and sort of the double whammy effect on people's lungs. So I think, you know, this moment is teaching us that uh, environmental health is public health, that these things all are kind of working in concert with each other. Um, but again, I don't think that the, the things that we're doing to stop this pandemic aren't necessarily the exact same steps that we need to take to solve the climate crisis. I mean, the science is telling us we have to completely remake the global economy and and become essentially carbon neutral by about mid-century, like sometime around 2050. That is a massive shift. And I don't think that we've taken the steps needed to be going in that direction. If anything, I mean, there's some early indication that the way that uh, the US and some other countries in the world are spending 
stimulus money and trying to prop up the economy right now could further entrench um, fossil fuel interests and energy systems and that sort of thing. And so I, I do think this is a wake-up moment in, in a number of ways. I just think that they're related but separate problems, right? If we, if we get our act together and, and beat this pandemic, it won't mean that we've taken on um, the massive challenges that still await in terms of the climate crisis. So just before I let you go, John, on this 50th anniversary of Earth Day, I see the political fight over this in, in sort of domestic American politics is not going away anytime soon. I mean, we do, there is not an actual consensus in politics like there is in science uh, over uh, some of this. But but Joe Biden, who today touted the endorsement of Governor Jay Inslee of Washington, who ran his entire presidential campaign on climate issues uh, – he is committing, should he win, to make this a number one priority. And I'm just wondering, if indeed Joe Biden becomes president, what is it that you think in all the climate activists that you talk to, what is it that they are going to demand of a Biden administration out of the gate to actually start down the road you're talking about by sort of that mid-century deadline? Yeah, no, I think that's an important question because I think there's a really stark choice between the way both of the the parties are are handling the the issue of climate right now. I mean, like you mentioned, the science on this has been settled for a long time. We know that fossil fuels are putting sort of a blanket around us in the atmosphere and and heating things up. I think there's this this growing sense politically in the U.S. on on the left that this is the Uber issue and that everything else is you know sort of wrapped up in and related. To it, um, I mean, I think since it's the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, it's worth noting that this is something that was talked about all the way back then. Um, you know, there was a NASA scientist who testified in front of the U.S. Senate in the 80s, saying the era of global warming had begun. We, we've gotten these warnings again and again and again over the decades, and I, I, and a lot of other people who care about um, climate and you know the and about all of us and about the future, um, really do hope that this is a moment where we um, make a concerted shift uh, away from fossil fuels. There are, there are certain policy um, benchmarks that, that I think people are looking for. But in the bigger picture, it's, it's like, are these policies setting us on a course to really rid our economy of fossil fuels and fossil fuel interests? Or are it, is it sort of so stair-stepped um, that we're going to be stuck with an economy that that is, you know, highly polluting and jeopardizing the future for a long time. John Sutter, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And a special thanks to our listeners as well. Remember, we publish a new episode every weeknight, so please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. While you're there, consider leaving a rating or a comment. It helps people find the show. And if you want to tweet about this podcast, please do so using the hashtag TheDailyDC. Stay safe, stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.